Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Peter's last words, and I, I, I find value uh, in, in this instruction just because it is his last words. He tells us uh, in the letter that the reason for his writing it is because he knows that he is shortly going to be going to heaven, and so he writes a three-chapter letter. Now, I would think that Peter would write a memoir, right, at the end of his life of all the things that he's learned and things that he's grown through, but he, he simplifies all of it down into three chapters. It's a very simple message, uh, and those three chapters essentially give us three things. Chapter one, he tells us what we should do, and it's a short chapter, it's not very long. Uh, then the second chapter, he tells us what we should not do, and if you read chapter 2, you'll see that he just gives a whole list of things from the Old Testament where people just blew it, and, and to the end that we should avoid those same errors. And then chapter 3, he tells us where our eyes should be fixed. He talks about the second coming of Christ, uh, the fact that Jesus is coming again to get our eyes on eternity and not on the things of the world. And then he signs off. You know, So it's a very simple letter, uh, but the, the truths that he gives to us are the things that he says, if there's anything that I would have you remember based on my life, everything I've learned, it's this. And so uh, chapter one, and that's what we're, we're not going to look go through this whole letter, but what we're looking at is what are the things that we should do? Uh, what is our part in growing up in Christ and being his disciples? So what should we do? We have a part to play in our growing. And what Peter does is he motivates us by telling us uh, the reward. You know, anytime we're, we're going to do something, I hope we have a reason. If, if you're doing something and you don't have a reason, that's called wandering. And we don't want to wander with our lives. And so he gives us a reason why we should do the things that he's asking us to do. And he gives us those reasons. He tells us so that we're not barren or unfruitful with our lives. None of us want to come to the end of our lives or even be in a, 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 a moment of our lives and realize that there's no fruit coming out of my life. I'm not accomplishing anything. There's no purpose. I don't think there's anything more debilitating as a man than to realize that I'm doing no good. <laughs> we don't want that. Nobody wants that. And so Peter doesn't want that. And he says, if you do these things, you won't be there. Second, he says, if we do these things, then we won't be blind. In other words, he's not talking about physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. So we'll have vision. Vision for our lives, vision for our families, vision for God's kingdom and how it works, vision to see invisible things so that we are aware and understanding what life is all about and what our place is in that life. He also says that if we do these things, then we'll never forget where we came from. We won't forget our sinful past and the destruction that it brought. We won't forget the emptiness that it was to live without Christ. <laughs> we won't forget uh, the, 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 just the world. And, and so he says we won't be forgetful. The, third, uh, the fourth thing that he tells us, if we do these things, he says we'll never fall. And we watch people all the time fall. You know, the, I think of Psalm 91, and it says that you'll watch 10,000 fall at your right hand and 1,000 a, a fall at your left, but you'll be all right, you know. And we see it. We watch people fall. Uh, they fall away from, from God. They fall from grace. They, they make mistakes that they can't really recover from or it takes them a long time to recover from. And Peter says, if you do these things, then that's not going to happen to you. 
And then finally, he says, if we do these things, then we will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. That when we do stand before Jesus, uh, that what will await us will be in abundance. We won't be in as by fire, you know, escaping by the skin of our tail, you know, from hellfire. But, oh, I made it into heaven. I got nothing, but I'm here. You know, but rather uh, there'll be an abundance. And so these are, this is the motivation in order for us to do the things that he's asking us to do. And so he gives us the list and he tells us this in verse 5. He says, besides this, giving all diligence. And so there's an intentionality about how we go about it. He says, giving all diligence, add to your faith. That's number one, add to your faith. And then number two is add virtue, which is moral excellence, which we talked about uh, a few weeks ago. And then number three, we're to add knowledge. We're to be adding knowledge in every way that we can, not just of God and of the Word, but knowledge of life, knowledge about ourselves, knowledge of how things work, knowledge of culture. We're to add knowledge, because God uses knowledge in our lives uh, to bring about application. And then next, verse 6, that we're to add to that temperance. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, That's our topic. And so temperance, if you're using another translation, actually most translations use the words self-control. So that we're to add self-control to our lives. And so this morning I want to answer three questions concerning self-control. First of all, what is it? Second of all, why does it matter? And then third, how does it come? How is it developed in our lives? And so, uh, first of all, what is uh, temperance or what is self-control? The word in the, in the Greek language that, uh, that is used, the original language, is actually translated most perfectly, continence. And if anyone uh, you know, knows what the word continence means, it literally means to be able to hold your pee. <laughs> That's, so if someone is incontinent, it means that they can't hold their pee. They need depends or, you know, <laughs> or some other form of protection or they just don't leave the house <laughs> or whatever. You know, but someone who is continent knows how to hold their pee. And the idea behind that is that there is something on the inside that wants to come out that there is a a pressure being applied internally of something that wants to be released. We all know that feeling, and the older we get, the more familiar we are with that feeling, and we understand, you know? And, And what temperance is, or continence is, is the knowledge of what that something is that's trying to come out, and then our ability to control it and to contain it until its proper ejection, or until the time of its proper uh, uh, um, release, or whatever the thing is. And so, in the biblical context, when we talk about continence, or temperance, or self-control, it's speaking contextually of the immoral deeds of the fallen nature. Now, all of us, every human being that's born a, a descendant of Adam and Eve, has a fallen human nature. And that fallen human nature has desires and and appetites, and some of those desires and appetites aren't bad. In fact, all desires and appetites in some way are created by God. But in our fallen nature, those appetites have 
a perversion and they have a desire to come out in ways that God did not intend. And self-control is the ability to contain those things and to know what they are and then to use those desires and appetites in the way that God did ordain and not for ourselves. Now, the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, the Apostle Paul makes a list of what these immoral desires are, these fallen deeds. And so he tells us there in, in, the, uh, in the text, he says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest or, or made known or revealed, which are these. And here's the list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Now, all four of those are in the realm of sexuality or sexual uncleanness. Then he goes on and he says, idolatry, witchcraft. Those two have to do with the um, kind of the subsetting or subheading of idolatry, which is greed, you know, a desire to indulge uh, in greed or have more than what is necessary. Then he goes on and he says, hatred, variance, emulations, which is kind of like, you know, jealousies and envy, uh, different form. He says, wrath, strife, sedition, heresy, envyings murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. And then he says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul gives us these lists, and he breaks it down essentially into four different areas of life. Sexuality, idolatry or greed, narcissism, which is using our emotional behaviors uh, for selfish means or to dominate, and then finally indulgences, taking in uh, things into our lives uh, that don't belong there, the drunkenness, revelry, and all that kind of things. Um, you know, and so all of us understand what it feels like to have something inside of us, and there's a pressure that's being applied to let it out. Uh, to, to, to release it, you know, this desire to, you know, indulge in some way. Now, all of my kids, I have five of them, every single one of them, when they were born, they let their pee out whenever and wherever they wanted. One such example of that was Christmas morning, shortly after one of my younger sons was born. And uh, we woke up Christmas morning. We were about to uh, wake up all the kids. And Georgia thought, well, let me change the baby's diaper uh, very quickly beforehand. And so she did. And you can, I don't know if there's a glare. There is for me. But if you can see that right, that he just decided that this would be the right time, (laughs) I'm going to just pee, you know. And so, so he peed all over my wife. Uh, there in the whole thing. But part of growing up is part of growing up is uh, learning, and this is for everyone, is that you can hold it in and that you should hold it in <laughs> until the time that it's right. And so for you and I in the moral sphere or arena, we have emotions, we have tendencies, we have desires, and we have appetites. 
and, and, and most of those things are from God. There's a reason for those things, and those things have a place and a way in which they're expressed or enjoyed. And so this whole concept or idea of discipleship, of being disciples, of, of learning to follow him, of growing up as his sons, is knowing what those desires and appetites and emotions are, knowing what they are, knowing what they're for, and then knowing when to use them, and also knowing when not to use them. That we can hold them in, and that we should hold them in. And that's part of growing up as Christians. And so some examples of this are in our sexuality, all of us have ingrained in us a sexual desire or a sexual appetite. And so being a disciple or having my sex life continent or tempered or in control, what that means is that, yes, sex is amazing, but I understand that it's for marriage. And so I know what it's for, and I know when it's supposed to be used, and so my self-control is containing that appetite and disciplining myself, being a disciple, to use it in the context for which God created it. Another example is our desire to possess things, uh, uh, possessions. Now, it's a, a rewarding thing for us to possess, and it's even something that God holds up before us. We read it in the Bible that he says that I will give you houses that you didn't build, vineyards that you didn't plant, lands that you didn't fight for, you know, and, and God, God holds it before us as an honorable thing for us to possess. However, we must understand that possessing things comes with a responsibility and it also comes with consequences. That for everything that we possess, that's something that we have to maintain. And so for us to overpossess means that we're going to be putting pressure on our lives and it's going to take away from other things. And so part of discipleship is understanding that knowing what it means to possess, and then having the responsibility to know when to say when and that enough is enough. I don't need to overcomplicate my life beyond what it is. It's not the purpose of life for me to just get as much as I can. That's not why I was created, and Jesus made that very clear. Another example is the emotion of our anger, and you could really uh, insert any emotion into that category. Now, the, the, the emotions that we have can be very powerful, but part of discipleship is learning that those things must be controlled. They're not to be used for my selfish cause. They're not to be used to control other people or steamroll or dominate other people. That's not what those things are for, that they have their right expression at their right time. So I must learn what those are and then how to use those things. Another example is food the food that we eat, that we need to sustain us. Our appetites are, are absolutely from God, and it's a very enjoyable thing for us to eat food. But learning food or having self-control or continence or temperance when it comes to food is understanding that the primary purpose of food is for strength and not necessarily for comfort. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times of, of the year or times in our life where we feast. We see feasting in the Bible. But we're to exercise self-control and we're to dominate our appetites and not allow our appetites to dominate us. Another example is medicine. God has created medicine. He has made things in such a way that it's a necessity. 
even in the kingdom age, there are going to be leaves from the tree of life that are going to be used for the healing of the nations. And so medicine is something that's from God, and it's a very helpful tool. But control or temperance or discipline in this arena is understanding that these things are intended for our health and not for our recreation. And so we're not to abuse medicine for the sake of making ourselves feel better when we don't need to. You get the idea. And so part of life as a Christian, part of being a disciple, is knowing the purpose of the appetites, drives, and desires that God has given to us, knowing what God's intent is for those things, and then growing up in him so that we're living with the proper controls in place. It's called self-control. So that's what it is. Why does it matter? Why does self-control matter? Here's why it matters, and I'll give you five things that you can think through and write down. First of all, because when self-control fails, it makes a mess that someone else has to clean up. You know, just think again of the illustration of my son peeing on my wife. <laughs> you know, anytime we don't control the way that we release the pressures that are on the inside wanting to come out, in some way there's a mess made that now needs to be cleaned up. Now, sometimes the messes that we make, not our you know, incontinence physically, but when we lose self-control or we slip in a certain area, sometimes those messes are forgivable but not fixable. Now, because of grace, they're almost always forgivable, but sometimes they're not fixable, and it makes a mess that does damage to others. And I think of David in this. You know, David had a lapse of self-control with his eyes. He allowed his eyes to indulge at a time and in a place and in a way that was unlawful. It was a lapse of self-control, and that steamrolled into a big mess that ruined his life and changed the course of generations to come. You know, it was a big mess. Now, it was forgiven. It was forgivable, but it was not fixable. And sometimes when we lose self-control, we make a mess that someone else has to clean up. Another reason why self-control matters is because when self-control fails, it almost always brings embarrassment and shame. I was in the car with my son, Rocky. Uh, I was picking him up, I think, from baseball practice earlier this week. And we were driving home, and we were having a pleasant conversation. And I was coming down the arterial back uh, out of Poughkeepsie, getting ready to make a left. And I was in the, the middle lane, and I needed to get into the far left turning lane. And so I had to cross a lane to get over. And so I was kind of watching traffic as we went and timing my, uh, my, my um, strategic lateral maneuver over into the turning lane, and it was going to require kind of coming between two cars and then merging into the other. And so I positioned myself in the right place, and then, you know, you got to do the quick signal and go, because if you signal and delay, then the person, you know, they don't want, they don't want to let, they don't want to help you, you know. So I did everything according to the unwritten rules, okay, and, uh, and, and I, I did the flash signal, and I started to go, and the car blared on their horn and jammed on their gas you know the one that was that was there behind and I lost my self-control for a minute when I and Rocky was there in the front seat and I said 
I didn't curse. You know, I'm pretty good that like that. You know, it's just a grace that I have. It's not my area of struggle. I have others. You know, but I did get loud, and I said, "What do you think I gotta do? You know, I gotta, you know, what, you know." And then immediately, the shame and the embarrassment. My son is sitting in the front seat, and I just let some things fly that have been storing up for a while. <laughs> in the in the sanctuary of my motor vehicle, this private and enclosed sanctuary of mine, you know. And so, but I, I, I lost self-control for a minute, and I immediately had to turn to my son and say, I'm sorry that I did that in front of you. And he just goes, it's okay, Dad. You know, and <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you know, the whole thing, and I made my adjustment and went on. Now, that's a, a minor example, uh, but those examples can become very extreme. When self-control fails, it oftentimes brings embarrassment and shame. A third reason why it matters is because a little slip in self-control can often result in an avalanche. And I think we all can relate to this, uh, that when we justify a little bit, we tend to lose control of a lot. Now, I don't know if this is true in the female species. I do know it's true in the male species. And, and again, I'm, I can only be this crass because I'm in an audience of men. I realize that women listen to this later online. Sorry, ladies. You know. But here's an issue with men. And, and uh, someone can tell me someday if this is true with women or not. But if a man starts to go pee and then tries to hold in the rest, that don't work. <laughs> that stings. You know, we can't do that as men. Once we let out a little, it's all coming out. And, and, and unfortunately, when it comes to this arena of self-control, this continence that we're called to have, there's a truth there, is that when we let out a little, it usually creates an avalanche. What happens when you cheat a little bit on a diet? Usually, you're done, right? You've fallen off the wagon. You're going to have to start from ground zero. It's just kind of the way that it happens. Uh, you think of somebody, you know, and they lose a little bit of self-control, and they drink just a little bit too much at a company party. Well, that's just the beginning. The avalanche comes when they tell off their boss, hit on the secretary, and put a lampshade on their head and dance on a table. You know, a little bit of a lack of self-control turns into an avalanche, you know, I think again of uh, David, King David in our example. For him, his thing was, I'm just going to look a little bit with my eyes. That was the little bit that he was going to allow, the compromise. I don't need to self-control in this thing. I already have enough wise. I'll look at someone else's. You know, that little bit of compromise with his eyes led to adultery and then uh, deception, and then murder, and then he became an angry person, and he wasted, well, a year and a half of his life immediately, and then the rest of it became a train wreck after that. But it started with just a little bit. And, and the problem with a lack of self-control in anybody, but especially in a Christian, is that a little bit often results in an avalanche. A fourth reason why it matters is because we represent our Father. We represent the God who has birthed us and birthed us into his family and that calls us by his name. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 17 says, Blessed art thou, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, our king is the king of kings and his sons would be by deduction, his princes, right? What does that make us? <laughs> it makes us God's princes in the world in which we represent him in. 
And what he's saying is, blessed is the land when the princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. It's just an illustration to talk about self-control, is that when we conduct ourselves the way that God intended a human being to live, that that brings honor to God. When we know what things are in our lives, appetites, affections, and whatnot, and then we exercise them in their proper way, restraining them in the way that they're supposed to be restrained, there's a nobility about that that honors God and pleases him. Now, I know as a dad, when my kids behave in the right way out in public, it honors me. You know, it blesses me. On the other hand, when my kids do not act the way that they're supposed to act out in public, I feel ashamed. I feel a sense of embarrassment. And we have the opportunity and the responsibility as God's kids in a world to conduct ourselves in a way that reflects what God made man for. That's what he tells us. He says, this is what, this is what life is. This is how it works. This is how it doesn't work. Now go do it. And when we operate in those boundaries, it brings God pleasure. It brings him honor. And he's pleased. And so when we don't exercise self-control, it embarrasses God. And when we do, it honors God. A fifth reason why self-control matters is because failure can cost us our crown. Now, that's what Peter's kind of implying, right? When he talks about those that fall, those that become blind, those that forget where they came from, those that will enter heaven with nothing, you know, to fail in self-control can result in the loss of a crown. I want to read you a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. And I want you to just listen to this exhortation. You can follow along on the screen. Paul says this. He says, Know ye not, don't you know, that they which run in a race run all. In other words, when, when the gun goes off, everyone starts. Everyone takes off, and they're competing in this competition, this race, this purpose. But he says, but only one receives the prize. Now, we understand that. There can only be one winner in a race. And so if you're, if you're in a race and you're running to win, now there's some people that run to run. That's usually me. I know I'm not going to beat the guy from Kenya, <laughs> you know, in the, in the turkey trot 5K, and he's, he's used to running marathons, and he's doing this for fun on a Saturday morning or Thursday morning it would be, you know. And, uh, you know, I know I'm not going to beat that guy, so I often run to run. But typically in a race like Paul's talking about, you run to win. That's your intent. And he says, and only one receives the prize. So here's the call. So here's how we're to run. Run that you might obtain. That's the instruction. In other words, we have this life that we've been given by God, this opportunity to serve a purpose and to fulfill a course in this world. And he's saying, take it seriously. Run with with purpose. Run with a reason. He says that in everything, in every man that strives for the mastery, sorry for my typos, I didn't proofread, is temperate in all things. There's our word. Do you see that word temperate? That's continent. That's self-controlled in all things. Now, they do it, the athlete does it, to obtain a corruptible crown, a gold medal, uh, you know, a monetary gift that they're going to spend on something and it's gone, (laughs) you know. They do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but ours is an incorruptible. The reward that we're working for is not, uh, not temporary, it's eternal. So here's what Paul says. This is my philosophy of life, Paul says. I therefore so run, 
not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beats the air. In other words, I'm not running with no reason. I'm not wandering through my life. I'm not fighting with a blindfold on, just swinging, hoping that I hit something, but not aiming at anything. This is not the way I live my life. And so he says this. This is how I do it. He says, I keep my body under. I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. That means I make it obey my will. My body has a desire and a will of its own, but my mind has to control the will of my body and be stronger than it. And I've got to know how to do that. Uh, one of the things I enjoy doing with my kids is running with them. And uh, right now I'm, I'm training my son, Noah, who is five. And it's, a, it's psyops. I mean, how do you get a five-year-old to run a few miles? You know, it, it really is. It's talking to them the whole time. It's making them forget what they're doing, forget what hurts, you know, and the whole thing. And we obviously, you know where we live. We, li- we live in the land of hills and valleys, you know. And, uh, and so w- when I run uphill with, with, with all of my kids have done this and doing this with Noah now, is, is I, I talk to them and I say, listen, you're going to run up this hill in a second. And when you run up this hill, your legs are going to tell you to stop running. And, and then you're going to get out of breath and your body is going to start to really want you to stop. But you don't have to listen to your body. You can tell your body to shut up and to run up the hill. And I promise you, you won't die. <laughs> you're going to make it to the top of the hill. And what you're doing is you're learning how to control your body. You don't let your body control you. You control your body. And all five of my kids, even down to Noah at this point, can run up a hill without listening. Now, you know, uh, well, I'll, I'll be nice to Noah. Some other continent issues he still has problems with, you know, but he can run up a hill, you know. <laughs> I have issues too. You know, he's not alone, you know. But listen to Paul. He says, I bring it under. I bring my body into subjection. Why? Listen, here's why. Lest that by any means... When I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Other translations uh, put it disqualified, lest I should be disqualified. And here's the point. The point is this, is that we can, with our lack of self-control and our wrong indulgence in the pressures inside that are trying to get out, we can disqualify ourselves from the prize that God has for us eternally. Now, he's not saying that we wouldn't be forgiven should we repent. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we can lose some of the reward. We can fail to live up to some of the purpose that God has for our existence and for our lives. And Paul says, knowing this, I make it my aim to beat my body and I bring it under subjection so that I can be temperate in this race, that I can be in self-control. Failure can cost us our crown. So the third question I want to ask this morning is, how do I keep my body under? How does it come? I don't think I'm, did I make any more slides in this? No, that's for later, you know. So how does it come? How does self-control come into our lives? How do we do it? Uh, 
um, three things and then we're done for this morning. First of all, it's learning what the boundaries and the parameters are. And that's, that's the easy part, right? We, we, a lot of that comes even without the Bible. You know, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. We know what's proper and what's not, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, you know? But a lot of it comes from the Bible. God tells us what the proper expression of things are and how life is supposed to be lived. We also learn it from example. How many times have you seen someone that you look up to, someone that you admire, and you want to emulate their discipline? You know, because you see something in them that appeals to you. And so we learn what the boundaries are and what the parameters are. The second uh, way that, that, that uh, self-control comes into our life is through this little thing we call self-awareness. You know, and that is knowing yourself. I know me, and I'm learning me more and more every day. I spend a lot of time with me. And so uh, and part of that is that I'm learning myself. And so if I want to be disciplined, if I want to have self-control, then that means I need to know the areas where I'm stronger and the areas where I'm weaker. And then I need to make adjustments in my behavior and my exposures accordingly. Okay, here's a for instance, a very benign example, is that I do not at any time have ice cream in my freezer at my house. Not even the downstairs freezer that's harder to get to. <laughs> no freezer in my house has ice cream because I have a problem. <laughs> and you're, you're laughing at me because it's not your problem, okay? But my problem is I can't eat a little ice cream. I like it too much. I eat a box of ice cream in increments. I don't eat it all at once. I go and I get a little more. I go and I get a little more. I go and a little more. Or if the box is, yeah, I eat the, the perimeter, the soft part around the edges, and then, you know, and then just a little bit more, and then I eat a whole entire box of ice cream. That's really, really bad for me. I can't have ice cream in my house. Now, at a birthday, you know, or something where it's there, you know, that's, that's I can eat ice cream. It's not sin for me to eat ice cream, but self-knowledge tells me, I can't have ice cream in my house, all right? Now, there are other things in my life that I do. There's boundaries that I have built for myself because I know myself and I know that failure has consequences. And so I'm going to do what I have to do in my life in order to keep myself far from temptation so that I don't fail in self-control unnecessarily. And so self-awareness is an important part of this, building self-boundaries into our lives, knowing what our weaknesses is. And then number three, how does self-control come into our lives? And here's the big thought for this morning, our conclusive thought, is that it requires the exercising of discipline. The exercise of discipline. That's why we call this discipleship, you know, because there's discipline. And what that means is learning how to say no to myself. Learning how to say no to myself. One of, the, one of the practical ways that we exercise discipline in our lives is through this thing that Jesus taught us about called fasting. You know, the, uh, t- the traditional 
Um, application of fasting is simply to abstain from eating food for a season, whether that's a meal or a day or a week or a month. Uh, you know, we see the extremes in the Bible of 40 days and the whole thing. But here's the reason why fasting uh, is such a big theme in Scripture and why it's so important. is because when we fast, what we're doing is we are practicing saying no to our appetites. And the longer we fast, the higher the intensity and the more the strength of the resistance it requires. And in the process of saying no to our stomach, we're strengthening our resolve to stand in our will against our appetites. And that's important. Because if we can learn how to say no to our stomach, which can be the strongest and most frequent of our appetites, then it becomes easier for us to say no to the other appetites that are constantly asking to be indulged. And so fasting is a very practical way that we can practice this thing of self-control. Now, a a thought on fasting that I want to give to you is that when the Bible talks about fasting, I, I think the objective or the idea is that fasting becomes somewhat of a lifestyle. And I want to uh, quote Jesus on this, because there was an instance, remember, where the disciples of Jesus were unable to cast out a demon. And when, and when Jesus came into the scene, he did it easily. It was just one word and it was done. And, and when they got alone later on, they asked him and they said, why is it that we couldn't do what you just did? We've done it before, but we couldn't do it this time. And Jesus said, you know, something about their lack of faith. But then he said, however... And here's the verse. It's Mark 9, 29. He said unto them, he said, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And so I read that verse and I'm a little bit puzzled because I'm like, well, how do you know when to fast? You know, because how do you know when you're going to run into a demon? You're like, well, that's easy, Pastor Nick. Don't eat lunch at work. You get home. There's the answer. You know, no. Demon, never mind. Bad joke. <laughs> when are you going to run into a demon? No, that's, yeah, that's it. Revelation, you know, don't eat lunch, you know. <laughs> but here's the idea, is that, is that fasting in, in this context isn't necessarily that you're living a life without eating food, but it's living a life of self-control. See, what I've seen is I've seen fasting misappropriated in this way, is that someone will use overindulgence or gluttony as a motivator for fasting. Okay, so they eat too much and they go, I got to go on a fast. This is ridiculous, right? And, and they're motivated by their guilt to fast. And so they go on a fast and they fast for a day or they fast for a meal. But then what happens is that they then allow the strength of that appetite to justify gluttony. Wherein now they go, well, I have fasted for a day. Boy, let me tell you, I am going to break this fast in style. <laughs> right? And, and, and they've kind of missed the point. Okay, yes, they, they said no. Yes, there's some benefit to, to what they're doing in that. But they kind of missed it. The whole idea behind it is learning how to live in self-control. Live within the boundaries and the parameters of what's proper. Enjoying things at their proper time, but not to the point of overindulgence, but just living in a state of constant discipline. That's a lifestyle of fasting. Now, food is great practice because it's so prevalent and so frequent. 
you know, but it spills over into every area of our uh, lives. And so part of discipleship is learning discipline, and self-control is the expression or the application of that discipline. So by conclusion, we have, you and I, we have the Holy Spirit. We have a new nature. We have understanding of what's proper and what's not. And we have examples that are before us constantly of both failure, shame, and success, honor. We have those things in front of us. And we have a call from God in our lives and from a dying man who knew a thing or two about leading a purposeful life that we are to diligently add self-control to our personality and to our well-being, and that that plays a part in our overall well-being in life and our effectiveness as Christians and as men in this world. One of my greatest fears in, in, in this life is missing out on something that God has for me or of being disqualified, or even of wasting time, even of of coming to a point where I realize that I've wasted an entire decade of time uh, that I can't get back. I mean, you, you begin as you get older to realize how short life is, and how finite we are, and how little we have. And, and, and what Peter's heart is, and what the heart of God is behind this whole concept of self-control, is that we would lead full lives— that we would fulfill our purpose, and that we would have a full reward. And self-control is a servant to us in accomplishing that end. And a lack of it hijacks that and wrecks it, and, and we end up wasting. And, and none of us want that. I know I don't want that. And there's a battle. We, we have to battle this flesh because these bodies in their fallen state, just want to consume. And they'll consume even to kill us. We lose in the process. So may God give us self-control, that we would add to our faith self-control. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.